Welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. Today my guest is Dr. Richard Saunders. He's an associate professor in the Department of Politics at York University in Toronto, Canada, where he teaches African political economy. His current research focuses on politics of resource nationalism, mining policy, and state-led projects in Southern Africa. He is currently principal investigator of a three-year multi-country research partnership in resource nationalism, also in Southern Africa. He is an author, and his most recent book is titled Fasters of Power, Politics, Profits, and People. He co-edited the book with Tinash Nyamunda. Richard, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I appreciate your taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks, Sheila. It's good to be with you. Lovely. So I thought we'd just go to ground zero and ask you to please help us understand what do we mean by resource nationalism, especially in the context of extractives and natural resources? Right. Well, resource nationalism broadly defined refers to the use of discretionary policies by governments to regulate and control the resource industries with the aim of achieving economic and political benefits. The use of that term has changed over time. Um, about uh, 30, no, 40 years ago, in the late 60s and early 70s, resource nationalism was generally confined to the idea of countries nationalizing foreign owned mines and extractive industries. But these days, there's a much more fluid and diverse understanding of resource nationalism. And it's not just about nationalizing companies, but it's a whole suite of policies which can be used to bring better development, employment opportunities, better revenues from foreign investments in local mining and uh, extractive resource industries. So you use the term discretionary. Um, can you contextualize that for us? Because I, I always thought that uh, the power of discretion lies with sovereign states to design any policy. In what context is uh, discretionary policies different uh, when we speak about resource nationalism? Well, the discretionary policies are policies which are not mandatory, which can be negotiated, uh, which can lead to a kind of a, a wide scale of different outcomes, depending upon the vision and the policies and the broader policies of government. So policies are discretionary which, uh, in the sense that they, there are options, there are various kinds of options. That, countries aren't forced to follow one policy or another when they're developing them. So in the case of resource nationalism, there's a whole range of discretionary policies or variations of policies which, are, which can be useful for making resource industries help create or facilitate development. And generally in resource nationalism, we say that there's three different kinds of policies. They're distinct, but they are overlapping as well. If there's so, for example, there's policies around the maximization of public revenue from resource extraction, and that has to do with taxation and, uh, you know, creating institute, institutions in the state for a more efficient collection of tax. So that's one kind of, of policy. Another involves uh, the regulation and ownership of extractive industries. 
whether there's going to be state-led or whether there will be joint ventures or whether it will be phased in domestic participation. Developmental spillovers would be how well the local mining sector links into other industries, whether it's uh, upstream, uh, you know, in the provision of supplies to local mines, what could be security or catering, whether downstream in terms of the secondary processing of copper or other minerals or polishing or cutting of diamonds, these are downstream linkages. On listening to you, uh, we, we have uh, obviously focused on extractives, but I was wondering, this notion of research necessity, is it peculiar to extractives or do we find uh, the same tendencies in other natural resources like renewables, land forestry, water, etc.? We do see uh, versions of resource nationalism in other extractive sectors, uh, forestry, um, uh, coastal resources, fishing, uh, and around um, uh, agriculture as well, some forms of export-led agriculture. But really, when we talk about resource nationalism, the main focus of uh, scholarly research, the main focus of policy making, and the main focus of public debate tends to be around uh, extractive mineral resources. And largely because uh, in many of the countries where we see resource nationalism as an issue, the mining sector makes up uh, a, a large proportion, if not the largest proportion, of export earnings and of uh, you know, tax revenues for the state. It's the prominence of mining which makes it so important and a central point in um, resource nationalism debates. Hmm. So uh, you and your colleagues have this project in uh, different parts of uh, Southern Africa. Is that indicative of Southern Africa having a greater propensity towards resource nationalism than other reasons? Or is it indicative of a recent surge or has, you know, Southern Africa and the, the world historically always uh, had tendencies towards uh, resource nationalism? The answer is both. Um, historically, we see uh, episodes of resource nationalism back into the 18th century. Um, uh, when countries have felt shortchanged by the resources, the value that they get of the resources, and have sought to protect local ownership, have sought to protect uh, local uh, manufacturing and secondary industrialization, which emerges from many resources. So we've seen this uh, resource nationalism in many successful um, Western economies from Norway, it's a very famous case, to Canada, the country where I come from, uh, to the United States, uh, to many other countries which have been blessed with natural resources, uh, but which initially were not getting the most out of them. Um, so we saw Norway, for example, which was one of the poor countries of Europe, uh, using a very clear state-led developmental uh, set of policies around the oil and gas sector to become one of the wealthiest countries. And, and you know, one of the mechanisms Norway uh, used uh, was to, uh, you know, have a state-owned company uh, which uh, invested, reinvested the profits from oil into things like uh, oil drilling technology. So the Norwegians are now world leaders in that. 
uh, oil processing and natural gas processing and liquid natural gas. And they also invested in pension, well, not pension funds, saving funds, a sovereign wealth fund. Norway's sovereign wealth fund now counts for 1.4 trillion US dollars. It is the world's largest holder of publicly traded stocks. And it invests that partly in Norway and invests around the world. So I guess the, the lesson from Norway and from Canada, from other countries, is that historically, if you manage resources with a clear vision, strong institutions, um, and a transparency, you can create development out of very little. Now, wind fast forward to um, Southern Africa. In Southern Africa, resource-dependent countries like Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, where mining is uh, a significant aspect of the economy and of export earnings in each case. There is a rising call in these countries at the level of national political debate to do something on the part of the state to manage these resources better. In the first year of the first 10 years of, of the 2000s, it was what we call a commodity super cycle. The world prices for many minerals skyrocketed. Many countries in Southern Africa, which produced those minerals, Zimbabwe amongst them, did not do well from that commodity boom. Other countries did. So that helped to feed into rising calls by local business, civil society, opposition parties, and others for a more concerted, focused, transparent effort to establish policies which would lead to the kind of developmental benefits that we've seen in other countries. Um, there was mm. one feature about Southern Africa, which is important to say, and that as well, is, is that there has been a democratic moment. The fact that government or ruling parties have been challenged at the ballot box has made them much more aware of the need to address citizens concerns, especially around resources. And so each of the ruling parties that we've seen, Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, have included as part of their, you know, at the center of their uh, campaign efforts and development projects, uh, new policies, resource nationalism policies around the extractive sector. So listening to you, there, there appears to be uh, very different drivers of uh, resource nationalism. First, uh, the citizens and their expectations, the pressure they bring to bear on politicians, but also sometimes political will and, and the desire to do the right thing, which we see uh, in the case of former statewell and now Equinox in uh, Norway. And, and so I wanted to ask you, when you, in your studies, are you seeing a difference in what has brought about resource nationalism between the Southern African countries themselves. You find that their countries differ in how they arrive at a, 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 if you wish, a push for resource nationalism. That's a really interesting question. Uh, and this is one of the initial findings of our research that uh, although the language, the vocabulary around resource nationalism is similar in each of the countries that we're looking at in Southern Africa, the specific focus in terms of actual policy making in addressing the you know, acknowledged gaps in policy is very different from one country to the other. And it's different depending upon which kinds of social constituency is, uh, is um, 
making the most noise, is the most effective, is uh, the most important constituency for government to consider going forward. So in places like uh, Zimbabwe, for example, we see indigenization as a big issue, and that's meant to benefit mining affected communities, um, uh, you know, people living around ore deposits who can, you know, participate in through share ownership trusts and what have you. But in places like Zambia, we see the domestic business lobby being more effective. And so in Zambia, the focus has been recently on local content policies. So supply and service contracts to foreign mining companies and, you know, and, uh, you know, trying to introduce policies to encourage and to even mandate that. In Tanzania, we see other issues around artisanal mining and access to land because there have been big conflicts between large-scale foreign miners and local artisanal miners. So in short, we see differences in the way in which policies get focused on in the pursuit of resource nationalism. We also see differences in the trajectory of those policies. So policies might start out saying one thing, but they get deflected or they get skewed in one direction or another, whether you have strong state institutions, which for example, can resist pressure from elites or whether you have a strong technical capacity on the part of local NGOs, which can really carry a policy forward by helping to monitor its implementation and you know, do tweaks in a policy to make it more effective in meeting the needs of identified constituent benefits. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I always thought of uh, resource nationalism as uh, ideologically based, in other words, uh, that it is rooted in how uh, those in power ideologically see the role of the state in developing resources versus it being necessarily uh, a vehicle for economic development, uh, which if one thinks of, uh, say, uh, Norway, or for that matter, my own country of Beth Botswana, where you could argue the state's participation in mining speaks to some form of resource nationalism. The, 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 the basis for these policies is fundamentally different from Zimbabwe's indigenization and South Africa's side. Uh, I think they have uh, the, the policy on uh, citizen empowerment, et cetera, et cetera. There in those two countries, the idea is the correct uh, the ills of the past. And, and, and so I wanted to know from you, I mean, Ed, where does one draw the line between resource nationalism ideologically and resource nationalism as a mere uh, policy vehicle for resource development? Well, I think resource nationalism is always going to be both. Um, it, uh, ruling parties and governing governments themselves implement the policies of a resource nationalism bent, not just for economic development and as part of a broader vision, but as part of an effort to legitimize uh, their role as custodians of the state. Um, so there is definitely an ideological aspect to it. And certainly what we've seen in Tanzania, Zambia and Zimbabwe is that uh, ruling parties have been forced to pick up the mantle of resource nationalism in order to defend themselves 
and reestablish their legitimacy in the face of complaints that they haven't done enough or that they've been very poor custodians of natural uh, national mineral heritage. Uh, so there's always going to be that ideological element. What's interesting in, in the current wave of resource nationalism is that the state doesn't necessarily need to be the lead player in mining itself. In other words, state mining corporations, like the old days of 40, 50 years ago, are not the necessary vehicle so that you can have a whole range of policies which allow space for the private sector, but regulate that space very carefully and restrict the conditions upon which uh, companies and new investors come into a country. So that there's a fluidity and a subtlety in current uh, suites of policies around resource nationalism, which we didn't see in the debates and in the policies of 50 years ago. Um, and that's refreshing. And what our project is looking at is not just the new policies which are coming up, but the access to policy making by local constituents. In the old version of resource nationalism, the fight was really between host governments and foreign miners, and you know, and the contestation over the rights and privileges of new investors. Our focus now is not so much on that international, national uh, conflict, but on the ability of local stakeholders to participate meaningfully in policy reforms and to have a role in supervising policy reforms through mandated state institutions so that the policy stays on track and the intended beneficiaries play a role in policy making and policy supervision. So we're looking at artisanal and small-scale miners, domestic business service sector, mining-affected communities, and finally, people at national level who have an interest in greater revenue so that which can be redistributed to important social services which have suffered, like education, health, public infrastructure. So in some we see a wide range of stakeholders at national level having an interest in reforming the resource sector to make sure that it provides the developmental potential that it has. So uh, I'm intrigued by uh, the distinction you make, uh, especially with respect to the role of uh, state-owned enterprises, because in two of the countries uh, in which uh, your study focuses, which is Zimbabwe and Zambia, and to a lesser extent, uh, Tanzania, there is, isn't there, a prolification of state-owned entities, or at least uh, an interest by the state in mining companies. And, and my sense is that uh, on looking at Zimbabwe, for instance, after 30 years, there's little to show for the role of state-owned entities. By contrast, your earlier example of Norway uh, emanates directly from the state taking a lead in uh, the exploitation of Norway's hydrocarbons as an investor. And I wonder whether you see any difference in the impact that the, the uh, state has when it has, if you wish, a stake uh, financially in the development of the resources versus 
if it is merely a facilitator making it possible uh, for citizens to coin your phrase to meaningfully participate. Uh, is there a, a difference there in terms of uh, development outcomes economically? Yes, the case of state-managed uh, state mining in the region uh, since the 1970s is, is a complex and changing one. So Zambia, as you know, uh, uh, nationalized the main uh, mines on the copper belt in the late 60s and early 70s. And then those are run as ZCCM, Zambabwe Consolidated, uh, Zambia Consolidated Copper Mine. Uh, but they have since, in the period of neoliberalism, been uh, sold off and privatized. So Zambia did have state control. It, in the end, the decline in copper prices and uh, and, and large management, it's a whole range of use issues led to the decline of that sector. Uh, we saw a revival in Zambia with privatization, but still problems exist. In other, other countries like in Zimbabwe, they, uh, the worst, uh, uh, there was a state uh, owned mining company which bought up some mines in the first decade of independence. There was also a mineral marketing corporation set up to make sure the companies were selling their minerals overseas, uh, you know, transparently by doing the selling for them. But neither of those entities have worked very well. The case with this Zimbabwean state miner was that they had bought up a lot of struggling mines to begin with, not high quality mines, but struggling mines as a way of rescuing them. So they were saddled with debt and very poor production. And the MMCZ, the Mineral Marketing Corporation of Zimbabwe, um, also didn't add much value to the marketing. It kind of took commissions, but had a, a overextended management structure itself. So those are not good examples. In Tanzania, recently, we've seen a return of the state uh, to the mining sector by a new investment in a joint venture with an Australian company in coal mining. Uh, coal, a bit unfortunate as a target, given uh, environmental concerns, but nonetheless, the state has said explicitly that they will invest in coal in order to build the Tanzanian power grid to create the space for secondary industry in Tanzania. In other words, they have a developmental vision attached to it. And, they're not, and it's not just wholly state owned, but it's a joint venture with the dominant Australian partner. So I guess the, what I'm saying is that there's a variety of forms of, and a variety of experiences of state investment in the mining sector, uh, but we shouldn't rule out some direct involvement of the state where it has strategic national developmental interest. It not, it's not necessarily ownership, but it could be a significant minority partner. And that this can be part of a broader industrial policy with strong significant effects. We've seen this again in the North where the Canadian state, the American state and others have been involved directly in extractive industries uh, when it's been in the strategic interest of the national economy. So there's lots of good examples of this uh, historically and currently. Hmm. Um, uh, I guess uh, I'm wondering, in terms of the study you're conducting now, clearly there are mixed uh, outcomes. Some countries fare better than others. In your studies, what have you observed in terms of the drivers of these outcomes? Is, is the flaw 
in the policy formulation or is in the is or is it largely in the execution and delivery you know, why do some countries succeed in other ways where others fail um, that's also a very interesting question in context of southern africa because we've seen a diversity of experiences even within single countries across different kinds of sectors uh, the incorporation of ASM, artisanal and small-scale mining, for example, uh, can be done well or it can be done coercively. Uh, it can be done through incentives, which uh, you know, uh, nurture greater production of gold, for example, and bring it into the national value chain, or it can be done brutally, which is not very effective. So one thing we found, and we're still in the field carrying out our work will be done next year. But one thing that we found in a preliminary way is that state capacity in terms of state institutions with good technical capacity, oversight capacity, non-interference from elites in policymaking and policy supervision, these things are very important in uh, the development and rolling out of a coherent mining strategy and its implement, implementation around resource nationalism reforms. Um, how do we, for example, include mining affected communities in local forms of taxation? That needs to be done in a you know, professional, technically skilled way so that local political elites, political elites don't get their hands into the, the funds which are raised locally from mining for local development. Um, and we, one of the lessons so far uh, is that stronger institutions, greater public inclusion and consensus and greater public participation in monitoring through mandated institutions make for better outcomes. So it's interesting because um... On face value, there seemed to be a contradiction in uh, a statement you just made and one you made earlier. The, the term you used earlier was meaningful participation by citizens. Yes. But you also single out elites for potential uh, interference. Can you just uh, explain to the listeners what you think differentiates uh, elitist interference from meaningful participation? Yes, well, um, meaningful participation of citizens would involve the setting up of uh, statutory structures uh, to oversee a mining policy in which you would have participation from mining companies, obviously from government, from civil society representatives, from mining labor unions, uh, from uh, local business supply sectors for the mining sector. Uh, um, meaningful participation means participation of the public who are representing different stakeholder interests and that they have a, a voice which is not only heard but can be effective in overseeing the implementation of the policy. We've seen this outside of the resources sector in terms of taxation. For example, the uh, HIV levy in Zimbabwe, which became a model for the region, involved the participation of health professionals, local community activists, government, of course, uh, and the business sector in defining 
how the tax on HIV would be implemented uh, for HIV support would be implemented through payrolls, and moreover, how the money raised by that tax was going to be spent. And with the statistics on all of this posted to the website for public inspection, that's meaningful participation. And it made uh, the it helped to make the HIV uh, levy in um, in Zimbabwe a, a success. It's seen as being legitimate, as being uncorrupted, and as having a strong developmental benefit. That's a really good example of how something like a tax, which is unpopular, can be made into a popular instrument of development by a uh, by a process of policy making, which includes a range of interests, which is convened by the government, but which is not dominated by the government. Uh, and what our research is showing is that around many different aspects of uh, resource nationalism policies, for example, uh, forward and backward linkages between mining and local industries, many of those kinds of new policies, if they involve local business in an important role, if they involve trade unions in an important role uh, and working with government, then they can lead to a consensus around policies which make them transparent in their development and in their implementation and can lead to real developmental benefits. In the case of local business, more business created by mining companies which, which buy catering services, security services, and some light manufacturing services from local businesses that previously had not done that work. Hmm. I, I appreciate that you're making the distinction between meaningful participation based on uh, transparent structures uh, that uh, everybody uh, in, can participate and that different interest groups can participate openly that as opposed to interference by using the privilege of access, but also operating in fairly opaque ways. Because I think in that way, then essentially uh, one group uh, is favored uh, over the other. And then de facto, uh, the, there is no level playing field and uh, economic development is then hijacked uh, for the benefit of a few. And, and I think this is important. I also did like your reference to uh, think the state thinking strategically about why uh, it might set up a state-owned entity or have a direct participation, that there has to be a strategic reason. We can't do it as a matter of course. And, and, and even more important that, that resource nationalism should be part of a bigger industrial policy. My sense is that these dots aren't connected in many countries that very often resource nationalistic policies are in isolation of this uh, you know, bigger picture. I wonder where, what your research is finding, uh, whether you know, there is an understanding of how the component parts come together in order to drive success. Well, um, with regard to thinking more broadly about the mining sector, you know, beyond just collecting revenue uh, for short-term gain, because countries need revenue, but looking beyond the question of taxation and getting dollars, more dollars out of mining, we see at continental level in Africa, uh, a really strong push now to think about or to, you know, have a perspective on mining 
which includes industrial policy, improving the value of exports. So it's not just raw materials, but semi-manufactured materials. We see this at continental level in the African mining vision, uh, which is uh, an, a document endorsed by the African Union with the support of UNECA, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. Uh, and it's been in place for about 10 years now. And the African mining vision uh, considers a whole range of areas in which a greater state role with a coherent vision for development based upon resources um, can follow particular paths for better outcomes. So the African mining vision looks at how uh, artisanal small-scale mining can be reformed to upscale the value and the safety of artisanal mining and produce more minerals uh, for rural livelihoods. It looks at the local business sector and how it can play into productive linkages. It looks at taxation structures. So the African mining vision, which has been endorsed by the African Union's heads of state, is now in the process of being domesticated, in other words, being rewritten at local national level into mining codes, but it's been a very slow process. Uh, and it's been partly slowed by the fact that some elites are quite resistant to having existing policies which favor them and their access to the mining sector uh, and having those that, that special privilege of access removed in favor of a more um, inclusive community participatory approach that we see in the African mining vision. In other words, strong institutions which can independently develop and monitor and implement uh, African, uh, resource nationalist reforms are sometimes resisted by political leaderships themselves because they want to have unfettered access in some cases to mineral resources. Of course, the best recent example of this is Zimbabwe and Zimbabwe's artisanal mining uh, around diamonds in uh, Morangi district, which was resource, which produced at least $3 billion worth of exports and far, far, far less than that in state government coffers because so much of the diamonds were smuggled and predated upon uh, secretly with the connivance of the state. So, um, hmm. you probably do know that, uh, you know, first of all, Ernest and Young, about uh, 10 or so years ago, you know, they produced this annual mining report. And, and in there uh, is uh, they track perception of, of investor risk. And uh, for, for some time, not so much now, resource nationalism or aspects of resource nationalism, such as local content, were deemed by investors to translate it to, into investor risk, which is to say an environment not conducive to attracting foreign direct investment. Uh, in the same vein, we know that uh, exploration expenditure in the region, and particularly in some of the countries you're looking at, Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa has declined significantly, in part because of perception of risk uh, driven by state intervention. Uh, uh, you also should probably know the Fraser's Institute survey in Canada, which is produced annually, 
That survey also shows that uh, to the extent that countries are seen to have a tendency towards resource nationalistic policies, you know, they, they tend to be fairly off-putting to uh, those wanting to put money. And so I wanted to ask you, based on that, is it your view and that of your colleagues, therefore, that resource nationalistic tendencies, despite good intentions, could potentially be bad for economic development, if only due to failure to effectively uh, attract investment? It's an interesting perspective uh, that, you know, if one seeks to regulate for national benefit, uh, you know, more closely a resource sector that'll lead to declining investor interest. There's lots of examples to the contrary as well. Um, and those examples, and I, and I think some of the experience of Southern Africa too, historically would show that it's not so much the regulation and taxation uh, that's put in place, um, which deters investment, but it's the unpredictability of uh, of statutory implements uh, or implementation, the cherry picking and the shifting of taxation schedules, shifting volatile royalties, anything which interferes with the long-term planning because mining is a long-term perspective when one invests 20 to 25 years typically. Um, anything which interferes with the predictability of revenue streams for companies actually brings in greater risk. So the, the challenge for company, for countries, the challenge for countries is to sit, put in place an infrastructure of taxation and forward backward linkages and other mechanisms which are predictable, uh, which are reliable, which investors think will be kept in place. Uh, and if that happens, there's lots of evidence to suggest that companies are willing to invest. If we look, for example, to a place like Chile, in which the state uh, is still uh, years and years after the copper mines were nationalized, is still uh, the, has control of the main uh, copper company, Fidelco, uh, which is the world's number one copy, copper producer. The state still has control of that, but it hasn't deterred investor interest in Chile because there is a predictable, legal, and forcible uh, framework for mining there. If we look at other countries which have high taxation, it's up to 44%. Um, that too has not been uh, a deterrent on investment as long as companies uh, recognize and feel that the levels of taxation and the implementation of taxation will be kept in place is stable and predictable. As long as they can predict what the revenue flows will be over time, that these, these kinds of resource nationalist policies don't seem to have an impact on major new investments. That's what the evidence suggests. I'm going to take your word for it since you are a researcher. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 but I, I do think that uh, there's some value to what you're saying. Here's why. The truth of the matter is investors uh, manage risk and, and they don't go into countries uh, with the assumption that there is no risk. They just want to be cited of the risk. And that is where uh, the notion of predictability is so critical. If they think they can predict the type of risk they are facing, then many investors are very capable 
of uh, uh, taking that risk. What is less uh, palatable is the notion that from day to day, you don't know what the regime is, fiscally or otherwise, uh, that you have to manage. So I, I think, you know, just looking at it from an investor's perspective, that makes sense. But, but I think also the contrast that you make between uh, Zambia and Chile is an interesting one. Because, of course, in the 1970s, when uh, Zambia first nationalized the copper mines, in terms of volume of production, uh, level of employment, and then other indicators, Chile and uh, Zambia were nearly neck and neck. But now, uh, Zambia just pales uh, in comparison to Chile's standing in the world of copper mining uh, today. And the difference has been that uh, there's been a lot of yo-yoing out of Zambia, whether it is laws or legal instruments. I think sometimes in the, in, in, I think it might've been 2016, in one year, uh, there had been more than 240 legal instruments relating to regulative mining, which is fundamentally an unstarter. So, so I, I think you make a, a valid uh, a point and, 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 and that is important not to throw away the baby with the bathwater by assuming that resource nationalism per se uh, is a bad thing. So there you are. Thank you very much for your time. I have enjoyed speaking uh, with you and wish you and your colleagues well as you progress with this study of Africa, the Southern Africa and resource nationalism in mining. Thanks very much, Sheila. It's good to be with you. And I'm looking forward to listening uh, to the other uh, podcasts in this series. Thanks very much. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.